All right, everybody, we're going to go ahead and get started. I hate to cut everyone's time and fellowship short. We go a whole week without seeing each other. We just got to we just got to talk to each other. That's that's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope uh, I hope that's not true. Well, maybe right now, maybe that's the truth for some people. But. I need to. I guess all the lights are off. I don't. Can y'all see that good? Is that good enough? I'm going to be honest. There's quite a few pages that have quite a bit of text on them. So if that's a problem, I'm going to apologize in advance. Is that better? Okay. Thank you, Bobby. All right. Welcome, everybody, to our sixth and final session in our book, A Time for Confidence, Trusting God in a Post-Christian Society. Um, before we start, uh, will, you, will you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, you alone are the creator and sustainer of all things. It is in our great privilege to live under your omnipotent righteousness, wisdom, mercy, and grace. You love us with better love than any we could ever know here on earth, and we stand in awe of your power and commitment to cherish us. Yet even though we have tasted your goodness, we are people who would rather trust in ourselves We place our hope in our own talents, abilities, and relationships with people we admire and love, in our jobs, in our good health, in our economic value, and academic abilities. We even place our hope in spiritual disciplines, thinking that we will merit more favor from you if we deny ourselves, pray constantly, or sacrifice for you and for others. Father, we are worshipers of ourselves. And we find our hearts full of anxiety and depression when we discover that we cannot save ourselves in any way. Jesus, if you had not lived a perfect life for us, we could never have hope or peace. You trusted your Father throughout your lifetime and into your undeserved death. Thank you for suffering the many agonies of life in a fallen world on our behalf and for remaining faithful and obedient in temptation, grief, and loss. Your glowing obedience and perfect righteousness are the strong foundation for all our hope and peace. We marvel that you would consider us a joy worth suffering for, and we bow humbly before you and offer you our praise, our thanks, and our very lives. Holy Spirit, teach us to be still and know that you are God and we are not. Please give us true grief for many for the many sins, ways we sin against you, and fill us with repentance and hope in you. Open our blinded eyes to see clearly your faithfulness and power, your great love and unending patience, your relentless determination to pursue us, captivate us, and ravish us with the truth of the gospel. Show us the unstoppable love of our Savior, who was stricken for our sin and who stands in heaven as our powerful advocate. Then, We will be at peace because you are perfect and strong, and you will never leave us, forsake us, or hurt us. Amen. Okay, so this is our, the last chapter. This is Confidence and Hope. Um, Before we get to our Confidence and Hope, um, let's consider some of the things that we place our confidence in besides God, the Bible, Christ and the gospel. Anybody have any thoughts? I allude, there were some in the prayer I just read. Some of the things we hope we, we place our hope in, our confidence in. Our Absolutely. Uh, human government. Mm, you hear that? Oh, our spouses. Okay, that'll be on the second list that we look at. So these are just some I wrote down, some of them that you guys also mentioned. Jobs, children, money, our 401k or lack thereof. Um, 
humanity. We say, you know, we see good things happen. We have a where our faith in humanity is restored. Yeah, sort of, <laughs> not really. Um, and then the last one, myself, thing I probably put the most confidence in, uh, myself. So these aren't all bad things in themselves, but if we place our confidence in them, they will surely fail us, right? So in the book, he lists just four things that we can be confident in, um, good things we, we should be confident in, um, confidence in love. Uh, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Was that all it took for Peter to stand firm in his Roman cell, his love for his Savior? Uh, what about humility, confidence in humility? Uh, humility leads Paul to urge his readers to take no confidence in the flesh. Uh, Philippians 3, 4. There's confidence in numbers. Uh, we must intercede for one another in prayer and good works. We are in this together in the body of Christ, the church. And then finally, um, confidence in prayer. And this one shouldn't be overlooked. Um, we can go before the very throne of God in confidence. Hebrews 4.16, if we are praying for God's will to be accomplished, we can have confidence that it will. But this chapter is on our confidence and hope. So we will read this quote from uh, Nichols from, this, from the book. While we live on earth and await God's will, which is forever settled in heaven, to come to fruition... We will what? What's supposed to be in there? We will hope. While we see Christ reigning as king now, seated on the heavenly throne at the Father's right hand, we await the full manifestation and revelation of his glorious kingdom. The sheer luminosity of the triune God will put the sun and the stars, even entire galaxies, to shame. So we live in the already and the not yet. As I quoted two weeks ago from John Piper, of course we cannot see what God is doing. We do not look at what is seen, but we know that he is working an eternal weight of glory for us. Sometimes it seems like this hope is all we have. When the waves of life are crushing me, crushing you, this may be the very the one thing that we still have left to hold on to. I must stand firm in the confidence of my hope. The power of sin is broken and we are no longer slaves to it. Jonathan Edwards speaks of it this way. We, were, we are all clogged by sin. In heaven, we will be unclogged. It's a good picture. I don't know if y'all can see that. It looks like it's really dark up there. So this is a, a picture of uh, somebody being lifted up into a helicopter, a couple of guys inside the helicopter pulling them up. So as I was going through this chapter, I was trying to come up with some picture that, you know, something that could illustrate some of, of what this, this hope that we have is. Um, and this just kind of kept ringing in my head, so y'all can disagree with me if you think this is a terrible uh, a picture, but... Um, so we long for the day of the fulfillment of God's promises, but now we live in between. We live between the promises and the fulfillment. God saved us from his holy wrath, not because of something we did. We are like the man on the stretcher. We are utterly useless when it comes to saving ourselves. He poured out his love to us through his son, but just like the person on the picture, we are not there yet. We place our faith in what Christ accomplished, but we eagerly long for the day when we can say, as Christ did, it is finished. I really wanted a guy climbing up a, a ladder to get to the, but it, it would have kind of been a little bit different picture. So this one's pretty good um, as far as 
God saving, saving us. So there can be such a thing as false hope, which leads to false confidence, which ultimately disappoints and causes defeat. So some refer to the 20th century as a century of disillusionment. It launched with tremendous optimism. Then what happened? Yeah. World War I, economic collapse in Europe as in, uh, inflation soared and in America as the stock market plunged. And then another war. <laughs> Mass murders and genocide. It was pretty dark times. So that innocence and optimism that filled the air at the beginning of the 20th, 20th century was shattered. A lot of the, philosoph the philosophers that came after World War II sounded like prophets of doom. So modernity. Modernity believed in progress brought about through the pursuit of pure knowledge by means of si the scientific method. It was science versus religion and faith. It held a nearly messianic view of institutions, which led to experiments in big government, socialism, communism. And then, in the wake of post-World War II, post-modernity comes in. The suspicion of modernity and its ideas, it saw the cracks and flaws in modernity. It seemed rather satisfied without having any concrete alternatives to modernity. It was dubbed the philosophy of despair. So modernity holds up what as our hope? We hope in institutions and ourselves, right? What about postmodernity? What's what is it says abandon hope. Abandon hope. Just abandon it. The problem is humanity cannot live without hope. So what is the thing hoped for? Let's look at, uh, we place our hope in Scripture. The hope, that, the hope that gives us confidence is not something that we create or prop up. Biblical hope is a sure thing. So let's look at 1 John 3, uh, first three verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So this is John's beatific vision, and it offers an example of the absolute certainty regarding our hope. John begins with his inability to describe fully the love of God for his children. John simply invites us to see the depths of the Father's love in God that God has sent his Son. John invites us to see that through our union with Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. We are his children. God's love is the only, re is he God's love is the only reason given here as to how and why we are the children of God. So, if we are not the children of God, then what are we? Use a children word in there. Children of? Wrath. Augustine called us Adam's sinful lump. That's kind of depressing. We were not good. We were not even neutral. We were born sinners, and as such, we were repugnant to the holy God. We could not stand in his presence for one nanosecond. Isaiah immediately dropped to the ground when he had his encounter with God, who was declared three times holy. Isaiah was experiencing something current scholars describe as the experience of personal disintegration. So do we really feel the weight of verses like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? What about Genesis 6.5? The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention 
of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do we? This is one of those filled up the whole thing, so I apologize if it's hard to read. We need to start with who we were. Only when we come to grips with who we were can we fully appreciate what we are and fully appreciate the work of redemption that transformed us and made us new creatures. So this is a quote from Nichols. When we were the enemies of God, at that precise time, God saved us. At our conversion to Christ, we have an awareness of our sin. We feel the pangs of the Spirit's convictions. We know of our need for a Savior, for Christ alone to atone for our sin and to clothe us with His righteousness. But how little we know of the full ugliness of our sin, our utter unworthiness. How little we know of the holiness of God. How can we fully appreciate the words of those magnificent angelic beings as they circle the throne of heaven and cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Throughout our Christian lives, we will continue to grow in our appreciation and depth for our sin and the towering height of God's holiness. Part of Christian maturity is realizing more and more who we really and truly were and appreciate more and more who we are now. We have actually come a nearly infinite distance from being children of wrath to children of God. What about Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth... It was not because you were more in number than any other people that, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Do you get the sense that God chose these people for any reason other than because it pleased Him to do so? When theologians speak of election, they usually use what word to go along with that? Chosen? Chose? What about our... What about, tu, what about tulip? What about... Uh, unconditional. There is a beautiful tautology here. God said, God set his love on you because he loves you. Doesn't really make any sense to us in our, in our minds. We don't work that way. So God set his love on us because he loves us. Nothing in us Cause God to love us. Behold, the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Everything belongs to the Lord, yet he set his heart in love on us. So one year after Luther posted his 95 thesis, he presented an entirely new set of theses theses in the city of Heidelberg. This is thesis 28. The love of God does not find, but creates. That is that which is pleasing to him. So again, this isn't how we operate. We look for the lovely or the worthy, and then we love it. We find something we love, and then we place our love on it. God's love is the opposite. While we were his enemy, he loved us in Christ. This is from chapter 12 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth, in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number 
and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace, with boldness are, able, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promise as heirs of everlasting salvation. Adoption means more than being sons and daughters. Adoption means we are heirs. All that Christ secured is ours. God is our Father, so we have confidence in our identity now, confidence in who we are. With this also comes confidence in our hope of who we, who we shall be. So who we shall be. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veils remain unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and when the Spirit of the Lord is, there is, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes to the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are being fashioned after the image of Christ. As we spiritually mature, we are undergoing a transformation, a renewal. Someday we will be transfigured, we will be glorified, and on that day, unclogged, as Edward says. Nichols says, we will fully know, we will fully love the righteous, the righteous standing before God, earned for us by the perfect obedience of Christ, will not only be our position, it will be our reality. All our remaining sin will flee like shadows when the lights come on in a, in a room. Our feeble and frail bodies, what Paul calls at one place our earthly tents, will give way to our glorified bodies, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. As, it, if, as if it were not enough for John to call us children of God, he now tells us that, that this, in and through Christ, is what awaits us and what will be. This is our hope. One day we will be like him. When we are free from all those things that detract from pure worship, we will be fully and finally what God intends for us to be. So going back to our First John passage, there's uh, four, the, the, he talks about the four to be verbs here. Um, who we were, which is kind of implied here, uh, not the children of God, clearly. Um, who we are, now the children of God who we will be, and then who we are becoming. So what we will be has not yet appeared. This is significant for our lives now, and this helps us deal with the friction that comes up in our lives. This is what we need to tell ourselves when we look at our kids. What they will be has not yet appeared. This helps us, us to have the necessary and as Nichols puts it, the rare commodity of patience with one another and with ourselves. You agree? There's another one. I apologize. So this passage is from the second head of doctrine in the Canons of Dort, which was written by Calvin to refute the, the doctrine of the Remonstrance. So in the second head of Dort, which considers the controversial point of limited atonement, we read, For it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving, saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all the elect, in order that God might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. 
In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father, that Christ should grant them faith, which, like the Holy Spirit's other saving gift, gifts, he acquired for them by his death. It was also God's will that Christ should cleanse them by his blood from, from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself, a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. This speaks not only of our conversion, but looks forward to our glorification. We are clothed in Christ's righteous robes from the very moment of our salvation. Yet in this life, we, through our besetting sin and imperfection, wrinkle those garments. Kind of like every time I wear a white shirt. It just never fails. I get something on it, food or something I'm drinking, coffee. One day we will be clothed in pure raiment, no spots, no wrinkles. So which head of, of Dort speaks the most directly to our future hope? Unconditional election, limited atonement, or particular atonement if you don't like limited atonement. Uh, total depravity, irresistible grace, or perseverance of the saints. Which one speaks most directly to our future hope? Absolutely. So what is the light at the end of the tunnel for all believers? This assurance of preservation, or perseverance, excuse me, however so far from making true believers proud and carnally self-assured is rather the true root of humility, of childlike respect, and of genuine godliness, of endurance in every conflict, of fervent prayers, of steadfastness in cross-bearing, and in confess confession, confessing excuse me, the truth, and of well-founded joy in God. Reflecting on this benefit provides an incentive to a serious and continual practice of thanksgiving and good works, as is evident from the testimonies of Scripture and the examples of the saints. So Nichols likens this to going to a workout class at a gym. He talks about a particular class he goes to. starts at 9 a.m. on Saturday mornings, and it's over at 11 o'clock. And during that time, that one hour, what's his only concern, his only hope? Surviving. That 11 o'clock will come. That it's sure 11 o'clock will come, and that class will be over with. I've been in those classes, and not fun. So reflecting on the benefits, that 11 o'clock will come, and it will be over, provides incentive. We need incentive. So Hebrews 12, 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with, run, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what will be has not yet appeared. This in no way becomes an excuse to condone sin, but it's a reminder that we are not yet what we will be. This should give us confidence. That's also terribly dark. That's Newton, if you can't read that or don't know. So Newton was a slave trader with a mouth that made even his fellow sailors blush. Then he was converted to Christ. He said something rather, pro rather poetically that re rather poetically summed up all of the teachings on our identity in 1 John 1, first three verses. I am not what I ought to be, I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
So these verses are like a multifaceted diamond that continues to stun as we look into it and turn it over in our minds. So I know many people who have hope and things to come, but it doesn't change the way they live their lives now. They tend to be a people summed up by one word, fear. They want to run and hide from the world and wait for the Lord to come. Is this the person that 1 John is calling us to be? Our hope has everything to do with the way we live in the world now. Because whoever has this hope purifies himself even as God is pure. Verse 3. We are all very aware of the moral standards, that moral standards seem to be in a free free fall in our time. But what does God's word command us to be? Holy, pure. And this is not according to some sliding scale of kind of pure, kind of holy, holier than this person, holier than that person. The standard of purity is God himself. Peter tells us to be holy as God is holy. John tells us to be pure as God is pure. The standard used here puts a full stop on any flirtation with moral relativism. I love how Nichols puts it, we must not lament the moral decline of our age only to become co-conspirators ourselves in subtle ways. It would be a potent testimony to the power of the gospel simply to be a people of purity in this world. Do you agree? In this chapter, Nichols talks about a small group of people in Africa. Those among the group who are Christians are known as the people who sing. When someone in the group wants to become a Christian, they say, I want to sing. They don't say, I want to become a Christian. Um, Among these people who have suffered terrible atrocities, decade-long strife, and and conditions of rank poverty... The Christians sing because of their joy in Christ. Those Christians stand out, and the people around them ask for a reason for the hope that is in them. First Peter says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The idea of living as a people of purity that John calls us to in our time is is a very powerful apologetic. We don't get to choose the world we live in or the time in which we live, but in the place and time... Where God has placed us, we are called to be <clears throat> excuse me, we are called to be faithful disciples. Bonhoeffer said, This world must not be prematurely written off. If our confidence is in hope, it's not escapism, it's not dis- disillusionment, but it's also not naive. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So at the end of a sermon on Romans 12, 1 and 2, Martin Luther King Jr. used the expression creatively maladjusted. Uh, King informs us that maladjusted people suffer. They are marginalized and persecuted since they are outside the mainstream and since they challenge the status quo, the mainstream and the status quo return the favor by persecuting and oppressing the maladjusted. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. To be a Christian, one must take up his cross with all of its difficulties and tragedy-packed content and carry it until that very cross leaves its marks upon us. 
So let's look at our First John passage one more time. So verse 1b says, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. What he means is the world did not know Christ the Lord or as Lord. They did not have a relationship with Him. They did not accept Him and they considered Him an outcast. This is the same for us. The world will not accept us and it will consider us an outcast. And we're finding that that's becoming more and more true every day. So there are two paths. There's conformity and conviction. The first path appears to be the easy road, the road well-traveled. The second path, not so easy, and consequently, not so traveled. But those who take the lesser-traveled road have good company. King finishes his sermon with some crucial questions. Will we continue to march to the drumbeat of conformity and respectability, or will we listen to the beat of a more distant drum? Will we move to its echoing sound? Will we march only to the music of time, or will we risk criticism and abuse, march to the soul-saving music of eternity? More than ever before, we are today challenged by the words of yesterday. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this wasn't written today. This was written quite a few years ago, but do we still feel that the same is true today, if not even more so? I think so. So someday we will be like him. That's our hope. But it's not a hope that we put on the shelf, and it's not a hope that sends us into a cave. It's a hope that sends us into the world with confidence. We can be confident in God, confident in His Word, confident in Christ, confident in the Gospel, and finally, confident in hope. There is a question that has always been there for the Christian and will always be there for Christians. Who is Lord? It used to be, in the early church, Caesar or Christ. Today it's the same question, it may be our health or Christ. It may be money or Christ. It may be false religion or Christ. But there is something, there's all, that question is always there for us. Who is Lord? And who will we give our lives for? Where will we place our confidence? The early church, the reformers, and so many down through Christian history did not let the temporal consequences overshadow the eternal ones. Will we do the same? As Hebrews 10 puts it, they had endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. From this singular point of lordship of Christ came the church's confidence, and also from this point came the church's convictions. So this is a time for conviction and is also a time for confidence. So with this call for confidence, I believe there's something bigger implied here. And this didn't necessarily come from directly from this chapter. The last slide was more or less our last slide. But as I went through this study and especially through this chapter and through some other material. Um, these three verses right here really hit me uh, pretty hard. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might not, may no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. And then finally, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, your spiritual worship. So I can almost guarantee that every man in this room would sincerely say, I would give my life for my spouse or for my children. Why is that? Love? Because I care so deeply for them that I would do anything for them. What about a stranger? Would you give your life for someone you barely know? If I'm being honest with myself, I'd say probably not. I don't have that same love, care, compassion for someone I barely know. The Christian life is a call for me to give up my life for the one who gave his life for me. So what about God? Are we willing to give our lives for the one who saved us? As I just said, I would, I would more than likely not give up my life for someone I don't know. So if I don't know my Heavenly Father... Why would I lay down my life for him? Paul Washer said, The more we understand about the gospel, the more we will live our lives to the God who saved us. My problem is, I don't know God, his word, his son, the gospel, enough to give me life for his service. Which leads to a lack of confidence when things are not going well in my life. I do not love God as I ought. So, how do I make myself love God more? It's a trick question. <laughs> I can't. Um, have, you, have you ever heard the illustration? Uh, Paul Washer gives it, but I don't think it's his illustration. Of the person, a man walks into a building and there's a guy laying on the floor and he's, he's pulling on his belt. He's on his back, and he's pulling on his belt as hard as he can. The guy walks in and says, what are you doing? The guy says, well, isn't it clear? I'm trying to lift myself up. He's like, uh, you clearly don't understand physics. So, so that's us. That's, we're that person laying on the ground. I cannot lift myself if I'm trying to love God more in my own strength, I will go nowhere. We need someone outside of us, much stronger than us, to pick us up and lift us from the ground. So that love that we have for God comes from God. I think that's a good picture of, of, exactly, of, of exactly that. This happens by spending time in God's Word and in prayer. The more time I spend in His Word and come to see who He truly is, the more I begin to love Him. The more of the mercies of God I see, the more my affections for Him are drawn out, just like my wife. I love her more today than I did when we first got married. That's because the more I see of her, of who she truly is, the person she's becoming, the more I see that, the more my affection are drawn out to her. It's not something that I'm doing to love her more and more. It's something that, that she is actually drawing out in me. And God is the same way. The more we see Him for who He is, the more we study God, the more we read His Word, the more time we spend in, in prayer with Him, the more our affections are drawn to Him. We will only have confidence in God, His Word, Christ, the Gospel, and our hope if we truly know Him and spend time with Him. So, my 
call to you is don't let this series or any other series we go through this year just become more knowledge that you have in your head that doesn't affect the way you live. If it does that, then we're failing you as teachers, as, as people who are trying to, to lead. So don't let this just become another series that is in my head. Maybe it stays there for a few months, and then I forget about it. But how can this, especially this series, our time for confidence, especially in the world that we live in, how can this series change your view going forward in this life. I hope that this chapter helped in that. I hope that all the other chapters that we've gone through have helped in that. Um, I have one final slide. I'm going to do it to you again like last week. But before we go to that final slide, um, does anybody have any final thoughts, not just this, this one whole series in general? Um, Things that you read from the chapter I may have not considered up here today. Go ahead. How do we not know, or how do we know? If we have true hope, real hope? It's a good question. Okay. Faith. Blake. It's do we believe all of these texts? Do we really believe it? Tom, you had something? That's that's a fine line though, right? That's not a that's not a black and white do this, don't do this. I mean that's that's a fine line to walk there of is my hope really in my future hope, or is it, am I hoping in the things of this world? And that's, I think that's easier for, maybe even easier for some than others, just personality-wise. Anybody else? Final? That's a good point. So as I suffer or go through hardship, if, if my hope is crushed in that, in that suffering, then was it real hope to begin with? I think. So as, as I did last week, uh, put the words up here. I'm not going to sing it for you. That's the last thing you want to hear. Um, I'm going to let somebody do a lot better job than me. And we'll close with this.
All right. <clears throat> With that. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Do we believe that? Final thoughts. Going once. Going twice. Thanks, guys.